Good morning. Welcome to Crime Talk BK. We're your hosts, Joanna Purvich and Megan Duffy. Good morning. And today we have a special guest, Alyssa. Hello. Thank you for having me. Thank you for being on the show. We're really excited to have you. You are, I think, our first official guest. So far, we've had a few um, friends of the show, uh, but oh. I think you might be the first person who um, actually knows what they're talking about. <laughs> <laughs> well, don't give me too much credit, but I try. I try. I try to know what I'm talking about. So. Um, so for listeners, um, Alyssa has been looking into, uh, the murder of Taisha Sargent, uh, which is a, uh, cold case in New York. And we actually covered, uh, the case, um, probably about a year ago. Um, but I mean, her murder still has not been caught. And so of course this is always a worthy topic to cover. And um, so, Alyssa, just to start us off, can you tell us a little bit about your background? Sure. So I'm uh, an investigative journalist um, living in New York City, living and working in New York City. Um, I'm also currently pursuing a master's degree in criminal investigation at John Jay. Uh, And I sort of I um, applied and pursued that program to better inform my journalism uh, because I, you know, I've really been focusing on these cases of missing and murdered girls and women of color. And that's kind of what has been important to me. And um, so the master's degree is just, you know, to make sure that I'm reporting on it the right way and like giving survivors and victims justice and, you know, also holding um, institutions of authority accountable. So that's kind of where I'm at currently. Um, yeah. How has right that school been during COVID? Because you just started, right? Yeah, uh, the program. Yeah, my first class was like last week. Yeah. Pretty nuts. Is it weird? Are you online? It, it, it's all online. Yeah. It's it's like awkward in the way that all Zoom calls are inherently awkward where people are like talking over each other. I don't think that's ever going to go away. But yeah. everyone just sort of accepts this new awkwardness that we live in. Mm. I was going to say, I definitely yeah. noticed that um, doing these COVID Zoom calls has, like, ramped up my social anxiety. <laughs> um, probably it was not the best strategy to make my background Star Trek themed. <laughs> Why? <laughs> my coworkers were like, what is that? It is interesting getting to look in people's homes, like, that you would never really see into otherwise. Like, I'm in this class with maybe, like, 12 students, and it's like, whoa. The people who have their camera on, I'm like, oh, I like that art. Or, like, oh, that mm, that looks a little janky, you know? <laughs> like, you need, a, you need more lamps. That's the critique I've been getting is my room is like a cave. <laughs> Pay no mind to the peanut gallery. Pay no mind. I like a dark room. Um, me too. Uh, so one yeah. thing that you mentioned uh, that I think really plays into Taisha's story is is that um, we especially have a lot of black women mm-hmm. who are seen, yeah, who are you know like cold case murdered, mm-hmm. and so I was just wondering like 
it's just straight up criminal justice racism at play? Yeah, I mean, I think there's a lot, a lot of components specific to Tisha's murder. Um, you know, it was 2006. This was post 9-11 Brooklyn, you know, five years after 9-11. Um, Brooklyn, the, the area that she was living in was not obviously like not the best area at the time. Um, and then on top of that, her boyfriend, her live-in boyfriend was involved with drug uh, dealing drugs. So I think the cops sort of looked at it as this is a drug, uh, drug related gang killing. And those are sort of generally deprioritized. And, um, you know, that really is one of the things that has made me pursue this case because, uh, it seems, well, for one thing, it, it seems solvable to me. Um, there were at least four witnesses to the shooting. And, um, you know, regardless of what was going on with drug, with the drugs or not, uh, you know, I think it should have been her, her life mattered and it should, it should have been followed up on and, you know, it should be, I, I think it should be solved. Of course, we'd love every case to be solved, but I just, I just think because they, if, if that is the, the, angle they're taking where it was a, a drug related killing, it would seem to me that it would be somewhat easier for them to solve it. If they yeah. have if they have known drug suspects in the area and they're dealing the same quantities of pot that he was dealing and yeah, you know what I mean? Yeah, I mean there are a lot of a lot of things to the to the story, especially in terms of the police investigation that don't, you know, fully add up or don't seem like they were necessarily pursued. Right. Um, I have filed FOIAs. I have talked to some people. I have spoken to the cold case detective who's working the case, but it's pretty much been impossible to get any information um, in terms of like incident reports or anything like that, or like the autopsy or anything like that. So all of the information that I've gathered, uh, you know, has been literally just like going out and trying to talk to people who wouldn't know anything or, you know, might remember a detail mm -hmm. about that time. Well, the NYPD yeah. is notoriously bad for, um, FOIA requests and transparency. Mm -hmm. Yes. Um, so just for our listeners, um, if you want to look into a police investigation, like into the records, you have to file a public records request in your state. And mm -hmm. um, if you're in Florida, you're doing great. Like they are very open with that type of thing. Uh, New York is horrible. So bad, in fact, that I think BuzzFeed has done – um, like investigative reports on yep. lack of transparency within the NYPD, even on things that they really should be. I mean, I think that they should be transparent about everything, but yeah. <clears throat> yeah. You know, like public safety issues, they still try to obscure a lot of this information. Um, a, lo a couple of attorneys that I work with do um, go down to court for criminal cases and, um, they try to make sure that all the the records are stay in the public viewing, because if it's a criminal case, you know, they, the DA will often lean on the side of the police department 
to sealed criminal records or mm-hmm. or even even just a basic open court proceeding yeah there's it's um you know it is possible to access court it's easier to access court records that are not you know that are with the courts and not with the police department you, in new, in new york you have to pay like a certain fee to get someone's court records but the police like if you file a foia and you have one specific request in my experience, you'll get back just like a boilerplate rejection. Mm-hmm. And you always have the right to appeal that. But it's like, how, you know, how long does, are you willing and able to use the resources to, you know, continue yeah. filing appeals? So it's, it is it is ridiculous. <laughs> yeah, yeah. As you, say, you have to eventually kick it to the court system and sue. And of course, if you're not mm-hmm. a news organization, if you're just like a private citizen, it's very difficult Right. Like, or if you're like a freelance journalist, you know, you don't have the backing of an of an attorney and you can't throw a subpoena at it. So, yeah. So why don't we just so first off, could you just say her name for us? Yeah. So it's pronounced Tisha Sargent. Tisha. Yeah. And do you want me to just sort of like give you a little summary of the story? Yes. Or summary of. Okay. So so what I can do is give you, um, you know, a bit of a summary of the story and then kind of the the follow up investigating that I did and sort of the path I followed with that. And, um, you know, I there's always kind of like an art to investigative journalism. There's not always like one way to one way to do things so you know I mistakes get made and I always try to learn from those mistakes um but you know I'll just sort of talk about what my process was here and I I, well okay I'll I'll start with this I'll start with the story and then I'll kind of get into my my process but um essentially so Tisha Sargent as we mentioned she was a black woman she was murdered in Brooklyn in 2006 uh, at the age of 26, and this case is still unsolved. Um, the uh, it was her case was reopened by the Cold Case Homicide Squad in the of the NYPD in 2017, and I did manage to speak to the detective who's heading up her case. His name is Jason Palomara. Um, I actually went into the police department and spoke to him. Uh, and then we had a couple exchanges over email and then he pretty much stopped responding to me, but I still reach out to him probably once a month, <laughs> uh, hoping to hear back. Um, and pretty much the only thing that he really told me was the reason her case was reopened was because there was a cl- kind of a cluster around the period of her murder of other specifically black women and a few um, black men getting killed, and these were, you know, unsolved. And so a couple of, of those got solved because of, like, new DNA, like, new DNA um, procedures. So, you know, they took Tisha's case as well and said, you know, let's uh, make this active again. The, can I, can I yeah, go a, ahead. When you yeah. say cl- a cluster, like, in the same area of Brooklyn? Uh, like the same time period. There okay. was, yeah, there was a, a serial killer actually who 
was re- recently arrested, I think, in 2019. Um, I'm, I I want to say his name was like Vernon Primus, but we might have to cut that out. Maybe don't quote me on that because, uh, but he was, so he was recently arrested for, um, for some of these murders. So they basically took a bunch of cold cases from the same time period and they were like, we're going to try to solve these. And I think Tisha's is like the one that they did not, they have not solved. Um, but bringing, making a cold case active again presents its own problems because if the case went cold and they decided not to reopen it, we, I would probably be able to have more access to information mm-hmm. than I can when it's now open again. Um, which kind of just gives the NYPD this like indefinite period where they are like we can't tell you anything about it it's active but it's like kind of in limbo so that's yeah. it but um so just back to her her story in general um i think it, you know it's also important to note that um it, you know it's her story has been referenced a lot in like you know the new york post or Gothamist or the Daily News is like one of the quote unquote most famous unsolved murders in New York. Um, and there was only one actually comprehensive article that was ever written on her case. And that was written by Bob Kolker, who's a pretty well, pretty famous crime writer. Um, yeah, it was, is that the New York Mag one? Yep. Yeah. It's called uh, Nine Blocks from Home. And it's, yeah. it's pretty comprehensive. It's well, you know, it's well written. It's a very good uh, article. Yeah. 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 But it did come out, you know, just a, a number of months after she was murdered. And nothing uh, has really been, you know, new. I mean, she's been mentioned since, of course, but there hasn't been anything new, really, written. That was kind of it. That was so actually that also- something that surprised me during my own research for today. And when we covered this a year ago as well, was the lack of coverage. Right. Yeah. And and I think I mean, part another stumbling block for me is that I did reach out to her family and I, you know, it it's worth noting I never heard back from her family. Um, I tried in multiple ways to reach out to multiple family members without, you know, I tried to be sort of as respectful about it as possible. I actually sent them a handwritten letter in the mail um, explaining my intentions and I never heard back from the family. So I wanted to pursue the case, but also respect the fact that maybe they didn't want to talk about it. Maybe they didn't, you know, want it to be brought back up in the news or that, you know, I was opening some kind of wound, reopening some kind of wound. So, um, you know, I, I I do have information, but I do think it's also important to mention that I haven't, uh, actually spoken to her family. No, of course. Um, Yeah. Yeah. But just in just to give a a quick rundown of of you know her her early life, um, Tisha's parents their names are Henry and Imelda and they emigrated here from Guyana. Um, they were married in 1979 and then Tisha was born in April of 1980, so you know a year after they were married. And then by 1982, the family of three was um, living on Clarkson Avenue in a one bedroom in Crown Heights. 
Um, uh, a little bit later on, two of Henry's daughters from a previous relationship moved in. So it was now a family of five. And then after uh, Tisha, Henry and Imelda had two more kids. So they had quite a few. It was, you know, quite a big family. Um, so Tisha and her siblings, they grew up in Crown Heights in the 80s. And it was not a great time to be in New York, as we know. There was the crack epidemic and, all you know, all kinds of violence. And, and so Tisha's parents tried really hard to shelter their kids from that life. You know, they're like, they were living in Crown Heights, but they didn't want, their parents didn't really want them to participate in what was going on in the neighborhood. Like they kept them very sheltered from that. Um, and, you know, try, it really tried to keep them from, you know, kind of, uh, you know, getting into a lifestyle, <laughs> getting into a lifestyle. And, and they were, you know, that was pretty successful uh, up to a point. Um, but uh, a lot of Tisha's friends noted that she did, you know, she did come across as very disconnected from the context of her upbringing. So, you know, the way that she would act and and her lifestyle, like, didn't fully jive with someone who grew up in Crown Heights in the 80s. Um, but... She's, you know, Tisha's super smart. She's super ambitious. She ends up getting into this program called Prep by Prep. It's a pre, uh, free private school for high-achieving kids from minority backgrounds. Um, she, so then she ends, eventually ends up at Wesleyan, which, um, you know, if you're not aware, is a pretty great school on the East Coast. Um, and then after she graduates from Wesleyan, she moves back to New York City uh, with some friends from college. Um, she pretty immediately gets a job at Credit Suisse, the bank, which which sort of speaks to her level of, you know, accomplishment and success that you get out of college, move to New York City and have this bank, have a job at the at a bank. Um, well, and not only that, but kind of the way that at least the um, New York Mag article describes her is that like in high school and then in college and kind of like whatever she decided to pursue she was very all in yeah very likable you know yeah yeah and like her job at Credit Suisse was she was hired under the premise that her job would be to go out and find you know other people of color and she would sort of like recruit them to work for the bank but she became really disenchanted when she realized like that's not what they really wanted of her like it wasn't it didn't really line up with her idea of what she thought she would be doing there and it was just a lot more bureaucratic so she ended up leaving Credit Suisse um then got a freelance position at Condé Nast so that's Condé Nast is is where she was working um at the time of her death and so it's around this time uh it's 2005. Um, she meets Keeve Huggins. His name is spelled K-E-V-E. And then Huggins. Uh, that, I think, is important to note because in some of the early reporting around this case, his name was misspelled. Yeah. I've, I've actually seen that a lot in a lot of cases. And 
it really does hurt the, you know, it can really can hurt an investigation because you go to search for this person and they're not, you know, you can't find anything about them because they're, they have, their name is misspelled or they're under like an alias. So that, you know, was a bit of a problem with this case too. Um, well, I mean, one of many problems. It just it also reflects kind of just a lack of care, you know. Yeah, it's very flippant. Yeah. In the reporting. Yeah. So, so she meets Keith Huggins. She meets him at a party. Um, he worked uh, as a party promoter, so she she met him at a party that he was promoting. Um, and this is the first guy that you know, according to friends and family, that she ever really got serious with. Um, he, he also lived, was living in Crown Heights. Um, he came from St. Vincent, St. Vincent and the Grenadines. He lived there until the age of eight. So that, there was an element of authenticity to him that like this West Indian authenticity that she reportedly liked about him because she had a West Indian background and he had a West Indian background, but he'd actually lived there whereas she grew up in Brooklyn. and. They were kind of pol- like they kind of seemed like they were polar opposites, but you know, according to her friends and her family, she was super enamored with this guy. Um, you know, early on, there she, you know, that early on she had some concerns, but by the time of the death, by the time of her death, everyone reported, you know, she was super in love with this guy. Um, so. Yeah, so as I mentioned, he worked as a party. He was working as a party promoter. He had a couple of odd jobs. Um, he said, you know, that it was really kind of being outside the system. It was hard for him to get good jobs is what he told her. So he also worked as a recycling. He worked at a recycling center at night. Like, he would sort the recycling. Um, and it obviously also came to be known that he was a pot dealer. So he was selling um, pot out of the apartment that they shared, uh, which I will get to now. Um, uh, and then also when he met, when uh, Keith and Tisha met, he did have a daughter from a previous relationship as well. Um, so, so uh, let's see. So that, yeah, so they met in 2005 within a year of them meeting. So March of 2006, they move in together. Um, April of 2006, so that's one month after they move in together, is Tisha's birthday, and she turns 26. Uh, and it's interesting, and this is what Bob Coker's um, headline references, but the apartment that they moved into was nine blocks from her childhood home on Clarkson, where her parents still lived. And... It, you know, the way her friends put it was, you got out of this neighborhood, you made this life for yourself. Like, why did you go back here? Um, and once, I, I mean, I, you know, I don't really have the answer to that, but, you know, well, love, I guess. <laughs> well, and it also sounds like, at least in the article, that, uh, you know, she, she was in some ways, in two very different environments, you know, like growing up in Crown Heights in the 80s, but then also being in 
like this private school where there's like very few people with her background and you know so I mean I can understand why someone would want to be able to pull all these different things more together yeah and and be like this is someone who gets me on a level that you know my friends from Wesleyan might not and like a lot of her friends from that she was spending time with like were white you know they weren't necessarily people of color even though she was also involved you know in like a lot of like black women's networking groups she she had friends kind of from all over but I think I think there was something about Keith like maybe even a little bit of that like bad boy sense that that she was into mm-hmm. uh, I totally understand that yeah I mean we've all been there right mm-hmm. so yeah so within a, a year of the meeting they're already living together um in this apartment the apartment's on uh, is the address of the apartment is 1785 Bedford Avenue. They moved in together in an apartment on the second floor. Um, and this is something that I le- learned later in my investigations. Um, I learned that Keith never put his name on the lease. Uh, it was Tisha's name on the lease. And then he put the name of a friend on the lease. And I still don't know. Still haven't figured out who that would be, but he didn't put who his name. Who does that? That's so weird. Yeah. Well, so I found out uh, later that the reason he didn't want his name on the lease was because um, he had a he had a drug charge from Miami Dade in Miami mm-hmm. Dade, and I mm-hmm. guess I don't know. I guess he was worried about how that would look, but you know more information will come to light as as the story goes on um but you know so he didn't put his name on the lease but her name was on the lease and they were living in this apartment together she was going to work during the day he was selling weed weed out of the apartment it's not really known uh whether she was aware of the extent to which his drug dealing was was um escalating I was just going to ask that how aware was she yeah yeah so uh, her parents you know have taken the stance that oh she never would have lived with a drug dealer some of her friends were like she didn't smoke weed before but you know with Kiva around she kind of got into smoking weed but you know in a casual way but then he would have friends over and it was like it kind of became this thing where it was just the pot den, you know, and it was, there was always just like a thick cloud of, of pot smoke in their apartment. And, uh, around that time she started to really become isolated from her friends. Like she was, you know, foregoing hanging out with her friends to see him, to be with him. And he didn't really want to be around her friends, which, you know, we all know is a red flag. Yep. Um, and then, Within two months of them moving in together, uh, Tisha is shot execution style in the head and dies in that apartment. Um, so that's so the date, the specific date is May 14, 2006, uh, which interestingly is both Mother's Day was both Mother's Day and Keeve's 28th birthday. Oh my Jesus. Goodness. Oh Jesus. Uh, yeah, so 
around 1.30 a.m. on Sunday, May 14th, um, the police get this call. Police get a call and they arrive to find Tisha dead on the ground with a bullet in the back of her head. She's been killed execution style. And this is the point where he give the, gives them his story. Um, yeah, what and, is his story? Yeah. So, uh, so his, his story changed several times. You don't and, say. And, yeah, yeah, no kidding. But the, the original story that he gave was, um, he'd sold $6,000 worth of pot out of their apartment that day. And it's just so much pot. It's so much pot. I know. Like, I know. <laughs> so much um, pot. It's like, where do you even put it? Your apartment's tiny. Right. Um, and so he says, like, so, so, it's, so it's a Saturday night, right? Because the police get called at one thirty, and on Sunday morning. So it's a Saturday night. It's like about to be his birthday, and he claims that he was asleep when this break-in happened. So he I says, know. "Yeah, no, <laughs> not no, not in your twenties." On your 28th birthday, when you just sold $6,000 worth of pot, like, you're not going to sleep, right? No. Um, so his, his story is that he's, you know, he's asleep. She kisses him goodnight. He falls asleep on the couch, and he wakes up to three gunmen, uh, or three, three men, three masked men. One has a gun. They, and... They've pushed Tisha on top of him, tied them together, thrown a blanket over them, and they're demanding money. They're like, where's the money? Where's the drugs? And then he says they shoot her in the head and leave, taking only his cell phone. One thing I need to add, to is you can't tell me you're that sound of a sleeper where three masked gunmen break into your apartment and you're not going to jump off the couch. Right. And yeah, I mean... This is a weird story. Yeah. So he also says that um, to the story that, you know, that he gives police is this is probably related to the drug deal that happened that day, which kind of goes back to your point, Megan, of shouldn't this, you know, if that was the case, shouldn't this be easier to solve if, you know, it's if he knows who he sold drugs to that day. but. You know, they stole his phone, allegedly, the the people who broke in allegedly stole his phone. And, I mean, I, I absolutely get that. There's, like, this, the culture of, like, no snitching and stuff. I, I get that, too. I get that, too. But also, you're not going to sell, if it's, like, say it's a bulk buy, right? Mm-hmm. You're not going to sell six grand worth of weed to someone you don't know without getting someone else to vouch for that person. Right. Yes. At least I wouldn't. And I've never dealt drugs before, but I wouldn't. That's the common sense approach to doing such things. So it's just, yeah, it's a a very flimsy story is all I'm trying to point out here. Yeah. For the fourth time. I mean, so this, yeah. So the story is that these three guys climb up their back, climb up the back fire escape and that's how they get in to the apartment. I went 
to that. I went to the block where the apartment is. I didn't go into the apartment building because it's now a halfway house for sex offenders. Oh, good. So I was like, you know what? Maybe not. <laughs> uh, but I spent a lot of time like walking around the block, looking at the backyard, looking at the fire escape. And there's no way three people, cl- three masked men climbed up that tiny little fire, like pulled down the ladder, climbed up that fire escape and got in and, and no one noticed. Right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So, so I tried to climb fire escapes before um, the apartment that I'm currently at. That's the only way to get onto the roof. And um, it's not easy. It's not easy. And in like, you know, at one thirty in the morning. And I mean, there's got like at the very least, Someone would see, you know, would see that if it were happening, too. Well, Um, pulling down the ladder alone makes a giant racket. Right. (laughs) Yeah. And like, and I, you know, it's, it's, this happened 14 and a half years ago, but the building hasn't changed. You know, the, the fire escape is still the same. And, you know, I've seen it with my eyes. Like, I wouldn't, I wouldn't climb that fire escape, you know, like that terrifies me. So, you know, I, I started, um, digging in obviously to this story because I was because it just sounded off and then he was changing his story and then he kind of stopped he kind of stopped cooperating um and I ended up talking to quite a few people as I mentioned not the family but Mm -hmm. I, I did talk to a few people and um pretty much everyone I talked to asked to be anonymous for fear of retaliation, of course, which is interesting, which is interesting because it happened 14 and a half years ago, you know? So it's like, what, I don't know what the lifespan of like a violent gangster quote unquote is, but after four, I mean, it, it says something that after 14 and a half years, the neighbors are still afraid of like gang retaliation. Um, Yeah. And that said, though, they they did, people did speak to me. They just asked to be on background. So so this is the information that I got from neighbors. Um, Multiple neighbors said that they actually witnessed the three intruders coming in through the front door of the building, not Mm -hmm. the fire escape. Right. um, At 1785 uh, Bedford Avenue. and they said that they, they're they pretty sure these men were led upstairs by Tisha. So someone buzzed. Tisha went down and got them, had her back to them, and led them back upstairs. That, to me, says Keeve and Tisha knew these people personally. Oh, 100%. Yeah. Um, so I think... Uh, I, I think he might have said that they escaped back down the fire escape. Um, but the neighbor, the neighbors who witnessed this believe that the, that the intruders escaped by way of the roof, um, that that was like really the only possible way they could have gotten out. Because if they, if they got, if they'd gone back down the fire escape, they would they would have sort of been trapped in this area 
Um, right. Well, yeah. no, all the all the roofs are attached, right? So they just they can yeah, go exactly. seven buildings down and climb down a more accessible fire escape, or even have uh, exactly. internal door access, right? Right. So that so so after having shot her, the neighbors are like, we're pretty sure they they escaped by way of the roof, which suggests to me. Um, they knew the building. They knew the layout of the building, right? They yep. know how to get into this apartment. And then, you know, if you just killed someone, you're not going to be, like, fumbling around trying to find a roof that you don't even know. It's like you don't even know that access to that exists. Right. So that says to me, these were people who knew this building. Um, there was also a 38 caliber gun discarded in the backyard of 1785 Bedford, but I've read that it's possible that it was not the gun used in the shooting. That, again, is something I can't really follow up on because I don't have, um, you know, that any of the reports from the police, mm -hmm. you know, whether they swabbed the gun. Um, so we don't really have any information except that there was this 38 caliber gun discarded in the backyard, possibly used in the shooting, possibly not. Um, but based on the structure of the building, that gun could have been thrown from anywhere. Like it could have been thrown from Keisha and Keeve's apartment. It could have been thrown from the roof. It could have been thrown from a neighbor's, you know, right. it could have been like a deep, like a decoy or a red herring or whatever. Um, so, and, and then I also, found out from the neighbors that um, I believe the first call to the police after the shooting was a woman who lived on the floor above Tisha and Keeve. Um, I, I don't know her first name, but she, uh, her last name is Brown. So we'll just call her Mrs. Brown. Um, she's now deceased. She was older, but she was one of the first people to call police and she called police around 1.30 a.m., saying she heard um, a fire, she heard what sounded like a firecracker and screams. Mm -hmm. um, so, um, and so then I also found a little bit more information about this marijuana selling uh, racket, I guess, that, that he was running. So, some of the neighbors said it's known that it, it was kind of known in the neighborhood that he was selling these massive quantities of marijuana out of the apartment. And his routine was that he would come downstairs in the middle of the night. And I, I guess it was like usually on Saturday nights, he would come downstairs, you know, as with the night that Tisha was killed and he would go up to a car and he would exchange cash for, for the marijuana and that delivery like happened on the street. So people would see this, right? Like people yeah. had witnessed this. Um, so the neighbors also corroborated that smaller quantities. So he was obviously selling like bulk wholesale weed. Yeah. Um, but the neighbors said that smaller quantities like dime bags and nickel bags of weed were being sold on a nearby street uh, potentially by members of a Jamaican gang there, you know, that area was and is known for, for gang activity, but you know, a number of feuding gangs, but, um, 
But if there was, you know, if there were gang members selling smaller quantities of weed on the corner, you know, Keeb would be a big threat to their operation. And, you know, that, that's definitely a reason to take somebody out. Um, or to, or, you know, take someone's girlfriend out. Um, and then through, you know, through a FOIA letter, this goes back to, to the Florida conversation. Uh, but I did find that, um, he did, that Keeb was indeed arrested for cannabis possession on um, October 10th, 2005 in Miami. So that, I, I guess, explains why he did not want to be on the lease. Um, and let's see, I think it's also, uh, oh, I, I also found out that he has kind of an interesting, Keith has kind of this interesting family background. Um, he comes from, a politically, a pretty politically connected family in St. Vincent and the Grenadines. His father is a man named Joseph Burns Bonadie, who's like this well-known, but also sort of controversial trade unionist there. Mm-hmm. But his family has these political connections that stretch all the way from the Caribbean to Canada. So it's oh. like, who knows who, who this person knows what kind of associates he has. I mean, I know, I know that he's certainly linked to, you know, some pretty dangerous, some pretty dangerous people. Yeah. Um, and, uh, let's see. So, um, also living in the building at, at 1780, Bed- uh, 1785 Bedford at that time was this DJ. Uh, his name is Peter Pottinger. He was the son of one of the landlords. Uh, he he goes he was a DJ, so he goes by DJ Peter Panic. I guess he was actually kind of like well known and worked with like Jay Z. Um, Keith was like wanting to get into DJing, so I think he was like Keith was kind of trying to be his protege. Um, so, yeah, so so DJ Peter Panic was living in the building. He had some prior run-ins with the law. The two of them were sort of, you know, sort of associated. Um, and yeah. And then, you know, besides that, um, I, you know, I, there's research that I've done and, and information that I found that I'm not fully comfortable releasing because I don't want to like defame anyone, but, um, you know, there was a lot of people living even next door, like sharing a wall with Keith and Tisha. There was like a, there were people living there at the same time overlapping that were very dangerous criminals that had committed, you know, violent burglaries before. So yeah. to, to me, it's not at all outside the realm of possibility that it was like a neighbor or someone who lived next door even. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, that's not that's not a stretch yeah. at all. Yeah. Yeah. So I think that's that's kind of the story. Um, or sort, yeah, sort of the. Do you think Keith knows more than he's saying? I absolutely do. Uh, I also reached out to Keith multiple times. I have, did not hear back from him. I think he. I think he absolutely has a sense 
if if not knowing exactly who one of the people is, like he must have a scent. And I get that, you know, at the time he was probably terrified for his life. Yeah. Um, but again, like your girlfriend died. You're the supposed love of your life died. The person you claim you wanted to marry. And it's also been 14 and a half years. So it's like, I don't know. There's just an element of like coldness to the whole thing. Like that, that makes it hard to identify with where he's coming from by not coming forward with more information. Um, but yeah, I absolutely believe that he has, that he has more information than he's let on. Um, these, these days he's actually working around the city he's a key grip so he he is always on like movie sets and tv sets and he's like the person who holds the camera or holds the microphone essentially um yeah that's a stub (laughs) and um so he, he i know he's also has had since uh tisha was killed he's had at least two more children um, but, but the, re, you know, the relationships with the the mothers of the children did not, did not work out. So, um, I mean, I, I actually spoke to someone who was in a relationship and had children with him and she said they don't talk, they don't keep in contact anymore. And that's all she would say. So that's interesting as well. Hmm. Um, yeah, so, yeah. Um, so how do you yeah. approach, like, carrying out your own investigation, like, in this case? I mean, you're dealing with a very sensitive subject, but then also it must just be very overwhelming <laughs> to to try to, like, trace back and... Um, find anything new, especially if the police, as you were saying, are maybe not prioritizing this or aren't being super cooperative? Mm-hmm. Well, I think the lesson that I learned early on is, like, the police aren't going to be of any assistance to you. And there are people out there who have information and have answers and they might not be willing to go to the police. Sometimes someone needs to come to them, you know, and then they might be willing to say something. Or someone has information that they just didn't know was important. Um, So in addition to, like, filing filing all these FOIAs, and I didn't just file FOIAs with the police department. Um, I filed, you know, FOIAs with the medical examiner's office and – you know, various courts and, uh, you know, just to sort of try to get as much information as I, as I could, um, with mixed success. Um, but you know, one of the things, I mean, I, one of the things I did was walk around the neighborhood and just talk to people. That was probably one of the first things I did, um, just to see if anybody still lived there who would remember anything. Um, I reached out to, everyone from Bob Coker's article as well and was able to speak to some of her, you know, some friends of hers 
Um, I also actually wrote letters to, I wrote letter, uh, kind of just a generic letter and I sent it to, um, because across the street from where they were living was like a huge housing project. And I think a lot of the same people have lived there for a long time. So I think people who were there, like those are some of the people who witnessed things. Um, so, you know, just like me, like trying to get in contact with those people and seeing who might remember something or who might have some information that they didn't realize was important. Um, and then, you know, like just, uh, you know, deduction, like looking at the fire escape and being like, there's no way that that could happen. And, um, also, you know, looking up, um, looking up who some of the neighbors were and like what their records, what their criminal records looked like. That that was uh, kind of the process I took to yeah. go about finding this information. Um, you know, getting in touch with landlords in the area. Most of that, you know, most, the vast majority of people did not get back to me, but some did. <laughs> um, and how much yeah. time have you spent looking into this? I mean, like, when did you first become aware of this case? So I think I became aware of this case maybe like four years ago when I, and I was just like Googling, you know, the most well-known, like like famous unsolved murders in in Brooklyn, New York, or even just unsolved murders in general. And hers came up and it just kind of, I don't know, it, it spoke to me a little because there were elements of her life that sort of reminded me of myself. And, um, you know, I, I, I had a lot of questions. It was really confusing. I also, I also sympathize, you know, with the fact that, I mean, even if Tisha was in any way involved with this drug dealing, that does not justify her being killed. But I also sympathize with the fact that, with the fact that she got into a relationship and she got into this situation where someone was bringing like really a lot of danger into her life and danger that ultimately got her killed, assuming we're going with the theory that it was somehow related to the, to the drug dealing. And um, I mean, I can't really, you know, I've kind of racked my brain and I can't really think of anything you know, anyone that would have personally targeted Tisha, um, you know, and I'm in uh, Bob Croker's article, the the narrative was was these burglars came in and, you know, Tisha like talked back to them and that's why they shot her. Yeah. So, I don't know. Maybe that's true. I mean, I guess we just don't know. But one of the things that really. uh makes this case so like heart-wrenching and frustrating for me is that I mean how old was she she was what 26 mm-hmm. yeah so she just turned 26 yeah yeah and like as Megan was saying earlier it's like I don't know I at least have <laughs> dated people I probably shouldn't have dated when I was younger and uh, who's probably been around people who weren't upstanding citizens. And it's like, there are so many people in these situations 
you know, and nothing bad ever happens, you know, and it was just like, it's just, uh, you know, like, it's just really unfortunate, really upsetting that this happened to Tisha, Mm -hmm. you know, and 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 it does, yeah, yeah, I mean, and it does seem like, and, you know, I, I don't, again, don't have access to, to the police files, but it, you know, I do wonder, um, I wonder what kind of investigation they did. I mean, I know I remember someone saying they that there was police tape up around the area for like at least a day. But, you know, I wonder, did they show up and think, oh, gang related shooting? Um, Some report, some news articles said that they found three ounces of marijuana in the apartment. That's a far cry from six thousand dollars worth. You know, what did he hide something? Then there's the fact that his cell phone was quote stole like stolen by the killer uh, by the killers, and this I believe is is was in Bob Coker's article as well. But the, uh, that there allegedly the the killers called Tisha's phone from Keith's phone that they'd stolen while he was with the invest like while he was being questioned by investigators. Um, because he was taken into the station that night, he was held overnight, and then he was released on bail. And that, I think he went to court later on, like, a, a marijuana charge, and that yeah, was pretty was, much it. It was pretty much just a simple possession charge. Yeah. Yeah. So, like, why did, it's like, why ha- has no one been, you know, inter- like, interrogating him or... um I mean, you know, and again, we don't we don't have all the information. When I spoke to the detective, he said that since they reopened the investigation, they've talked to him at least once. I'm assuming that means they've talked to him once. (laughs) And, you know, who knows how much pressure they put on him. Um, But I do think he has information and I just hope that someday he will reveal it or, you know, maybe someone who, who is responsible for this or knows something will reveal it even if they're maybe in prison or I mean who knows at this point. Yeah. Um so I think just one last thing that uh I'd like to ask you uh mm-hmm. before we go. If anyone is listening to this podcast and does have information that they would like to share about about the murder, what should they do? So the best thing to do would be to get in touch with the detective who's working this case. Um, so his name is Jason Palomara. Um, he's the de- detective on the cold case homicide squad. Uh, I don't know, like, you know, with the current situation with police defunding, I'm, I'm not like, I'm a little worried about how the cold case unit is going to be affected because it's already like, so under like there's already so few people working cold cases but um the 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 detective heading up Tisha's case his name is Jason Palomara his direct line is 718-330-4127 uh you can also email him and his email is jason j a s o n dot palomara p a l a M-A-R-A at NYPD.org. 
Um, and if for whatever reason you don't feel comfortable going to the police, you know, you can always contact me as well. Um, Joanna, if you want to maybe put, I don't know if you want to put my contact information somewhere or, or whatever. Um, you know, I, I, um, always keep sources anonymous. Um, you know, that's just part of my process that that's always an option. So if it feels safer, you know, to come to, to a journalist, I'm open to that as well. But, um, you know, people with tips are encouraged to go to Jason Palomaro with the NYPD. Well, thank you for being on our show and for uh, sharing all of this um, information about Tisha's murder. Uh, Hopefully it makes a difference. Yeah, I really I really hope it does, because I uh, actually have kind of been trying to, like, pitch a story around about this case for a while. And, you know, there's just hasn't been a lot of interest in it. But I think one something that's important to think about as we're in this time of like racial, you know, racial upheaval and a lot of things coming to light and sort of this reckoning is it's not just, you know, cops killing black people or people of color in America that is a problem. It's also cops not being willing to investigate like black on black crime or, you know, treating black deaths in general as like less important. Um, because I, I think we could, all agree that you know if Tisha was white the outcome might have been different so yeah yeah, I think that's (laughs) something important to keep in mind all right well thank you so much for being on the show and you are welcome anytime anytime girl (laughs) anytime all right thank you I'm I'm flattered Well, thank you for joining us on Crime Talk BK. New episodes um, are every Saturday from 11 a.m. to noon. Later, guys.